0: Hello. Hello. Hi, Bob.
1: Hi. My God, you're very impatient, huh?
0: Hey, my name is Shada Omidvar. And this is a phone conversation between me and my dad, Amir Omidvar. He's the one this podcast is about.
2: What can I do for you?
0: <laughs> well, I need to. I need some more sound bites for this teaser. I need to add something to it. So, like, kind of like an introduction of who you are. Um, are you going to, are you in a quiet space? Are you relaxed? Yes. It doesn't sound relaxed, but okay. Um, (laughs) over the course of this season, I'm going to help tell his story. Can you say your name?
1: Amir Amidvar.
0: Can you say like, my name is Amir Amidvar?
1: My name is Amir Amidvar.
0: Are you trying to give yourself a British accent? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <No>. <laughs> How about
1: an Australian accent? Okay, no. let's try again.
0: <laughs> yeah, try again.
1: Hi, my name is Amir Omidwar. I have lived in Canada for nearly 35
0: years. This is The Hopeful. Like many Iranians living in Canada, my dad left amidst the Iranian Revolution of 1979, and once Iran was at war with Iraq. The story of how he got here is kind of like a family heirloom. There's almost a sense of mystery to it. Every family member who's heard the bits and pieces of it has their own interpretation, kind of like an urban legend of sorts. And many other Canadians who entered this country as a refugee will likely have similar stories to tell. For now, I'll help tell this one. When I first started hearing these stories, I was a kid and I remember them coming up when my family would go camping. At night after dinner, my dad would light up a fire for us to gather around. And this is when the stories would come out. My dad told them as if they were fables that were intended to be told around a blazing flame. He'd tell us about escaping Iran in the middle of the night with nothing to guide him but the moon, about being thrown in prison in Mexico after trying to cross the US border about a chance romantic encounter with a stranger on an airplane, and about the countless close calls facing deportation back to Iran, where he could have been imprisoned or executed for escaping. The stories were exciting, heroic, romantic, and nearly unbelievably true. Over the course of this season, you're going to hear them all. I think my dad catered what he revealed as I got older, Maybe he waited until a certain age knowing I could handle more information. And eventually, these stories started to shape me, especially the stories of his struggle to change his own life path, to help his family, and to shape his future. His stories would always end with a lesson. They always ended with...
1: All of this to make sure you and your sister have a better life than I did.
0: And with that... I was forever obligated to make sure my life could live up to that expectation. My life has to have meaning, not only for myself, but for the legacy that my dad has created. One of my personal mottos, although not original at all, is where there is a will, there is a way. And I believe in it so strongly because of my dad's stories. He willed himself a better life. At no point in his story did he run out of will. And with that, he kept paving a new way for himself and for his family. I'm not saying all it takes for a refugee to make it to Canada is sheer will. It's important to acknowledge a person's individual will is just one part of a much bigger equation. Our government could make a number of structural changes to increase safety for migrants and support their well-being. This podcast isn't letting Canada off the hook, but we'll talk more about that later in this season. I'm making this podcast because I want the story to be more than a family heirloom. My dad is so proud of his accomplishments, and he's ready to share it with people outside of our family bubble. In 2015, I was with my parents visiting my mother's family in Turkey for a few weeks in the summer. This was the year that the Syrian refugee crisis was at its peak. When we went to Bodrum, we saw hundreds of Syrian families occupying the parks and sidewalks. Every day, the numbers would double. I couldn't help but think of how their stories could be similar to my dad's. And I could see that he was thinking the same thing. It was an emotional summer for him because he empathized so deeply with them. We started to bring containers of food to mothers and their children to help in some small way. That winter back in Canada, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau announces they'll be accepting 25,000 Syrian refugees to come and live in our country. And the country was torn in two There were people on the front lines, signing up to be sponsors, raising money, providing legal aid, and just ready and willing to help in any way that they could. Then there were people terrified of these newcomers, asking, will they take our jobs? Will there be more crime? Why is the government helping them when there are still so many Canadians who desperately need help too? I have concerns
1: from Saskatchewan people about safety issues. And so we're not saying Saskatchewan doesn't want to welcome refugees, or Canada shouldn't. We're saying, let's not be driven by a deadline.
0: They are effing crazy. Are you kidding, 26, 25,000? How are they gonna screen these people? The people we're taking in have already been away camps from camps already? Yeah. Really? For up to four years. Really? Yeah. I d- I d- our
2: commitment to bringing over 25,000 refugees uh, in no way uh, weakened uh, our resolve to ensure uh, that first and foremost Canadians are kept safe.
0: I knew that the backlash was not right, and again, I thought of my father. Someone who was once a refugee, became a Canadian citizen, owned his own business, owned his own home, put his children through university, paid taxes, and became a respected member of the community. How could his story not be one that Canadians would want to help fulfill for other new refugees? After attempting to start a manuscript for a book, I told my dad, let me figure out an easier way to get the story public. I had just started getting into podcasts, so of course I naively thought, okay, this should be an easy way to do it. I called up my best friend, Portia Larley, who had worked at an independent radio station in Montreal and was also a super fan of my dad's story. And I asked her if she'd help me make this podcast. Of course, she was all in. It originally took a bit of convincing my dad to get him on board. But after he gave it some thought and consulted with my mom, He was all in, too. What was it that motivated you to make this story public?
1: I think uh, it was you guys. I always told the story, you know, uh, because I was so proud of my accomplishment. And for a lot of people, it was not, you know, they could not comprehend or understand or really uh, they couldn't believe one person, one human being can go through all of that and never give up. And I thought, if I could share it and uh, inspire somebody else, that then I thought it was worth of telling the story.
0: We originally interviewed my dad in 2016, but as life goes, other things became a priority and the podcast had to take a back seat. But it never left my mind. Every few months, Portia and I would chip away at writing. Four years later, we're making this thing for real. Portia is a co-writer on the show, and I couldn't be making it without her. She knows and understands my family like no one else. In February, I traveled to Vancouver with my producer Claire Brassard to meet my dad and sit down with him to hear his story from the beginning. Leading up to the first day of interviews, my dad was growing nervous. He started to worry about how his accent and pronunciation would sound once recorded, whether the neighbors would make too much noise during a recording time, whether he would forget important information. Needless to say, he was getting cold feet.
1: Now I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, now I have to worry about uh, how I'm going to say it, how my pronunciation is going to be, How what, what I'm going to say.
0: Well, what's different? Just make sure that you don't think about those things. It doesn't matter.
1: Yeah, easy for you to say.
0: To see a man like my dad nervous is endearing and at the same time worrisome. He's such a strong-looking man. He appears unshakable. His face and hands are remarkably expressive with character, both textured with scars, showing evidence of someone who has clearly worked as a laborer their whole life. But it's a strongly defined furrow between his eyebrows, which is, without a doubt, his defining feature. Most people at first impression of my dad find him a bit intimidating, to say the least, sometimes even scary. The first time I met Dai was in the airport when me and my mom landed. I was terrified. This is my cousin, Mehrnaz. We're just one month apart. She moved to Canada with her mom when we were both seven. She calls my dad Dai, which means uncle in Farsi. He called me skinny, skin and bones. And he's like, why haven't you fed her? And my mom's like, I can just imagine her thinking, like, I've been through so much shit. Like, I don't need to <laughs> to know my kid's small. He had the, the mustache and he was just like this giant man. Like, what was I, seven? I could say, an, honest to God, a good 10 years. I was terrified of him. And of course, my dad is actually the biggest softie. In retirement, my dad has become a huge animal lover. It's pretty endearing to see this intimidating looking man make friends with a bird on his balcony. And I don't mean like he fed it one time. I mean like actual friends. My parents spend their winters in Mexico, and my dad got stuck there during the COVID-19 pandemic. I'd call him up at least once a week to check in on him, and he'd tell me about a woodpecker that would come and visit him every day. The woodpecker would fly into the balcony and shoo away all the other birds while my dad threw breadcrumbs down for them. The bird would sometimes come inside the house for a quick hello, have a little chat with my dad, and then fly off, only to return for the same routine the next day. Maybe we should make this podcast about Amir, the modern-day Disney princess, instead. I warned Claire about my dad's growing nerves and that he may seem shy at first, but to wait until we go out for a meal. He just needs to get to know you a bit better so that he can offer the same. We broke the ice over some food at a Persian restaurant. Claire impressed my dad by ordering fesanjan, a chicken stew made from ground walnuts and pomegranate molasses and Persian spices. It has a look that most non-Iranians would probably hesitate to try. Now that my dad felt more comfortable, we were ready to record. The next day, we went to Claire's hotel room-turned-studio, where my dad and I sat down across from each other. There were definitely some nerves between us initially. Good morning. (laughs) Good morning. Um, So why don't we start from the beginning, I think it would be great if you could tell us what your childhood was like what was your life like with your family in iran
1: hmm. okay now <laughs> <laughs> i was born in uh in iran in tehran more specific 1960 january 1st 1960
0: a fun fact we share the same birthday
1: uh I, i'm was or i am in a seven out of seven children uh Uh, three brothers and three sisters, I mean, four boys and three girls in our family. Uh, I'm in the middle uh, of the seventh.
0: The house my dad grew up in was small, consisting of about four rooms. His family, which was himself, his siblings, and his parents, all occupied one room, because also living in the house were his grandmother and an uncle with his wife and children.
1: My father worked very hard. Seven days a week, never had a holiday. Maybe one time, I remember, they was alive, only had a one-time vacation, two days vacation.
0: My grandfather worked for the military, but he was never able to retire fully as his family still needed the financial support. He became a landscaper for Iran Air until his final days before he passed in 1974. Before my grandfather died, there were many financial struggles. My father started working when he was really young, about nine or ten. His two older sisters, Muluk and Shamsi, were married off at a very young age, each not even 15 years old.
1: Today's standard is unthinkable, getting married, but 50 or 60 years ago, it was part of the norm. And obviously financial burden on on the parents. So it was hard.
0: My father explained that at the time of his sister's marriages, he wasn't aware of how wrong this was for them to be married so young. A few years into his second eldest sister, Muluk's marriage, he and his siblings began to realize the pain and suffering their sister had been put through. They confronted their father, asking him how he could have allowed for this to happen. But by then, the damage was done and there wasn't anything him and his siblings could do anymore. It was an act of survival for the family. At some point, my grandfather had to do some things he didn't want to do to make sure that his family could get fed. And in some cases, it meant sacrificing the quality of life. When Portia and I started writing this podcast, the first person I knew I wanted to interview for this was my Aunt Muluk. I call her Ame Muluk, Amme meaning aunt in Farsi. She played a really big role in helping my dad leave and survive once he left.
2: I was 15
0: at the time, so I couldn't understand what is good for
2: my life. My husband was 30 at the time. I wasn't in love with my husband, why should I lie? But I was in love with my family. Every day, going to my family was like running away from prison. And every night, it was like I'm going back to prison. My life was very hard. That's why I was emotionally attached to my family. After I gave birth to Mehrdad, my dad told me, you're suffering this life. Maybe you should divorce and have an easy life. But I said, there's no way I let someone else raise my child. It should be his own father. I was 15 and a half years old when I gave birth to Mehrdad. We wouldn't know that we can live for a couple of years to grow up and then get pregnant. It wasn't like nowadays that everyone has a phone and a computer. We didn't see any part of the world. Just our family and mom and
1: dad. As I was growing up, because of lack of financial we had in our, in our family, me and my brother always worked in, uh, in the summertime. Always worked uh, like doing the selling ice cream or selling this or selling that, trying to have a pocket money. You know, other kids in, in a neighborhood, for example, they go on a vacation, whatever. We didn't have that luxury. So we worked, my brother worked, I worked, uh, whatever we could get, just earn a few bucks for our pockets, so we can go uh, swimming or buy ourselves a running shoes or buy ourselves a pair of pants or whatever.
0: My dad can only remember his father taking him and his siblings to the movies one time after they begged him. My dad says he will never forget looking over at his dad during the movie and seeing him fast asleep. My grandfather had to work so hard to make ends meet. In Iran, once you finish high school, you need to write an entrance exam to get into university, kind of like the SATs in the U.S. My uncle Hossein was the first to graduate, but even with his good grades in school, his exam score wasn't high enough to earn him acceptance into an Iranian university.
1: And came to my father, he says, all my friends who didn't pass the entry exam to university, they go into Europe for continued education. And my father said, "What do you need from me?" Uh, my father, my brother said, "I only need six months of the money to can survive, so I can go there, continue education. I mean, uh, to be able to survive for six months. After that, I can get a job." And my father said, "I don't have it. I don't have the money. Uh, we can go put the house on uh, as a collateral or whatever, but I don't have it."
0: Frustrated, my uncle finds a summer job working construction in Chabahar a free port on the coast of the Gulf of Oman and Iran's southernmost city. He figured he'd just need to work for about six months to earn himself enough money to be able to afford moving to Europe. I recall my dad telling me how upset his father was that his brother had to do this. He wished so much that he could afford to support his son. Chabahar has a hot desert climate, so in the summertime, it can reach highs of nearly 50 degrees Celsius, 122 degrees in Fahrenheit. With almost seventy five percent humidity and nearly no rainfall. Every time there was news about the hot weather on TV, my grandfather would be pained with remorse.
1: And in in that three months or so, one one night my father walked in from work and then he didn't feel very good. And then he started throwing up he throwing up blood. Right away we took him to the hospital. They said he needs a surgery to open them up. After two days, he said, No, it's too late. He's got a stage four or five cancer, four cancer. It was very, spread it over. Within eight days, he was gone. I lost my father when I was 14. He died of cancer and he died very young. He was 54 years old when he died. And I left behind and my younger brother who was four and a younger sister was seven. And my mother had to deal with all the challenges to raising us.
0: I never met my grandfather, but I imagine he's like my dad. Caring, strong, disciplined, and devoted to his children. I know that my dad would take the best of his father and then whatever more he could on top. There's about a 15 year age difference from my dad's youngest sibling to the eldest. Even though my father was still just a kid, himself and his older siblings took on the responsibility of helping care for the youngest two.
1: One thing my uh, my my father before that he was last before he was gone, he said to my brother, uh, "I want you to look after your siblings because you're the man out of the house right now, so you need to look after them." And my brother was felt responsible, felt obligated to stay behind and look after us. In other words, and because of lack of money, I mean, he stayed in Iran, and he changes the direction of his life, he changes off all, he put everything on the shelf. Uh, it was so selfless not to put himself first, and then rather he put our mother and my brother's sister to stay behind to look after them and us.
0: After I interviewed all of my aunts and uncles, this was the strongest message coming out of it, the love that they have for one another. The first time I went to Iran, I was 14, and my dad sent me alone with my cousin Mernaz, who you heard from earlier. The second time, I was 27, and I went with my father. I got to know him in a totally new way. We traveled to the village where my grandmother was from, where my dad's siblings built her a home, on the same street as distant cousins and relatives, and just meters away from the mosque. The few days that we were there, we were joined by the rest of the family who drove from Tehran. It was Noruz, Persian New Year, which is celebrated on the spring solstice. I think there were about 30 of us between three houses. In my grandmother's house was myself and my dad, his older sister, oldest brother and his wife, his youngest brother, and a nephew who is about the same age as my youngest uncle. And of course, my grandmother. Everyone but her was sleeping in the living room and kitchen, which is all one large room. It's common in Iran to have visiting guests sleep on the floor with homemade mattresses made from layers of blankets and sheets. Every household has a closet of these mattresses set aside for times like this. When we were going to sleep, my dad and his family were chatting to each other from their beds. They giggled like kids making jokes and bantering until 2 a.m., as if we were having a big sleepover. That memory is so precious to me. My dad's so childlike and so in love with his family. I never doubted that love, but to be a part of that moment was something else. They're each other's soulmates. At the core of this love is without a doubt my grandmother, Mama Anjun, as her grandchildren call her, which means dear mother in Farsi. I was lucky enough to have grown up with her, and she's the main reason I'm able to speak Farsi. She's the reason I even exist, because she convinced my dad to marry my mother. My dad and his siblings were incredibly devoted to her, as if she was their religion everyone in our family was, a divine matriarch. She died in January of this year at 92 years old in Natanz, Iran, where she was originally born. Nearly 600 people attended her funeral to pay respects and to say goodbye to our mom, Anjun. So in
1: the introduction about my mother, seven children, four four sons, three daughters. Three daughters are the angel of her. She's supporting her. To the last minute, she was so truly special. that One of her specialties was her smile. And positive was nothing bad or negative for her. Anything you show her, anything you tell her, beautiful. She never saw anything negative in in that matter. She. Didn't. When uh, the time came, uh, like do the laundry or do the washing the clothing, my mother she used to break the ice in the pond and do the our, our uh, washing or washing our clothes. Years later, she developed the uh, arthritis. So from the pain, she uh, she cried out loud and all that and. My father felt so bad, he even bought a washing machine uh, for her on the installment.
0: This story about my grandmother is one of the first that I remember my dad telling me as a kid. I love my grandmother's hands. As a kid and into adulthood, until the last time I saw her before she died, I loved to hold them. Her skin was so soft, wrinkled with age, and her knuckles enlarged from arthritis. I would hold her hands, look at them, and think of her washing her children's clothes in a frozen pond. How can you not be humbled by such a story? Now, whenever I meet new people or I'm zoning out in a public place, just people watching, I look at their hands because I know that they can carry stories. It's like I can see if someone has experienced struggle or hard work. There's a sense of integrity to having weathered hands. As a child, my father dreamt of moving to America. It all started when a friend of my dad's from the neighborhood returned to Iran after spending time in the U.S. to study to become a commercial pilot. My dad was about 12 years old at the time. The neighborhood held a party to celebrate his return. My dad remembers it being such a grand affair with food, decorations, dancing, and fireworks. He remembers seeing something different in this neighbor that he had grown up with.
1: And I said to myself, wow, you know, for someone went out for a year and a half or so, it came back. It changed so much. It was more modern. It looked better and all that.
0: I've actually met this man. His name is Kiomars, and he lives in California now. But occasionally, he'd visit Vancouver and come by to see my dad. Now that I think of it, my dad would always talk about him or interact with him in a way that he was a role model of his, someone he looked up to.
1: Right and then, I decided... I want to make a difference for myself, and hopefully I can make a difference for my family.
0: Here's my Amin Malouk again.
2: At that time, all the youngsters were planning on going away from Iran because of the war and the political climate. Everyone was sad because of the war. Each person had a reason to leave. They didn't want to leave their families, but they were looking to achieve their dreams as they couldn't do so in Iran. Especially an idealistic person like Amir, who had big dreams. Many wouldn't even care about any other word, but Amir was looking at the magazines and he would check Canada, United States, etc. on the map to learn where in the world they are situated. He wasn't an ignorant person.
1: So I worked from age of 14. I started working full-time. I dropped high school, went to a full-time workforce to save money and to be able to leave uh, Iran.
0: Then, one night, someone came into my dad's life that would have first held him back and then become the catalyst for the rest of his story.
1: I was invited to a birthday party. There was a girl. Start talking. I asked her if she would like to dance. We had a slow dance. It was a nice music, friendly uh, environment. And then, again, something... It just right, and there, it, it felt it felt good, and then we start dating, and we start uh, going out together. I was almost 15 years old; she was 13 or uh, 14 years old, and we started dating. And this relationship got stronger and stronger and stronger over, over the years.
0: I want to mention that my dad was so bashful while telling this story. Maybe he was trying to keep it PG for my sake. He also never mentions her name. I'm not sure why, but he's always told the story about her like that. Even though I have learned her name since, I think I'll continue the tradition of keeping her nameless. While everything was going well with his girlfriend, my dad still thought about leaving Iran. In Iran, every boy must complete military training when they turn 18. Today the term is 24 months. There are some exceptions to the rule to either delay or avoid attending altogether. For example, if you attend university, you can delay your military service until you're finished. This may be a big reason a lot of Iranians have PhDs. As soon as he finished his military training, he was on to the next step in his plan to leave Iran.
1: The very, very next day, I went to a passport office. I applied for my passport. I went, picked her up from school, and she asked, what is this application is for? I said, "This is a passport," and she threatened me if I leave Iran, she would get married right away. Or because she she was it was a taker for her to get married right away. So loving her so much, caring about her so much, I just tear the application apart and I throw it in the garbage. And I said, "No, I'll stay." So that went on for a year or so, but I never stopped thinking about living Iran.
0: At this point in his life, my dad was doing pretty well. He was working as a mechanic, making really good money, and was able to save up enough to open up his own bike shop and keep some aside for his dream of moving to the US. Everything was feeling really good. And he hoped that this would impress his girlfriend's family. Surely enough, they did notice and suspected he would soon ask them for her hand in marriage. But they had other plans.
1: Till today, I don't know what happened or what reason. They said, no, we will not uh, give the our daughter to you. There is no such a way because you're not good enough, you're not educated enough, you, you don't make financial, you're not uh, good enough to support her or yourself or for future kids and all that, so no. Five years into the relationship, five years uh, committed to that relationship, she uh, just came ice cold, never answered my any of my calls or go or whatever nothing. So I was devastated. So we had few years into the war, I finished my military, I got my passport and unfortunately the, the, the borders were closed. And they shut down all the borders, nobody was allowed to go unless they had permission to leave the country. <laughs>
2: We tried to stop him as no one in the family at the time has left the country. There was no internet or TV for people to learn what is going on in another country. Each person only knew what is happening in their own family. No one would know what is out there and how others lived. Everyone was partially satisfied from their life until the war has started and life became harder for everyone.
1: I decided towards the end that's time to go, time to leave.
0: This season on The Hopeful.
1: Since the border was closed, the alternative was to escape.
0: I just went there and locked myself
1: inside and it screamed so loud. That's the reality, that he's gone. And I thought I'd never, ever be able to see him again. The guy who spoke about the Farsi, he said, "You have some money." I said, "Yeah, I have some money." He said, "Offer him some money."
0: He sure he's one brave fellow, taking on a big venture such as that.
1: I just sat in the corner. I was terrified. I was scared, and I was terrified. And I said to myself, "Oh my God! No one knows where I am. No one knows where I'm going."
0: They would always talk about their struggles, but they never would say like, "Oh, like I wish I did this differently," or like, "Blah blah blah." blah. I was always like, "Okay, now what's next?"
2: I was already a mom. And I just saw a very lost, sad child that had had to leave his family behind because of circumstances.
1: The other countries, they put me in jail. They made me hungry, they beat me. But this country opened the door. I said, I am not gonna betray the trust. I am not gonna backstab step. I'm, I'm gonna stay good and be a good citizen and a role model citizen for myself and have an impression for other people.
0: The Hopeful is part of the Frequency Podcast Network, written and created by myself and Portia Larley. It's produced by Claire Brassard, sound mixing by Ryan Clark. Our research assistant is Deepak Bidwai, and our original theme song, the one you're listening to right now, is by Ench. Find him on Instagram at Ench Music. Special thanks to my cousin Marinas Shirz, my aunt Muluk Omidvar, Paneshet Taharian for their voiceover. And Semko Salehi for translations. I'm Sheda Omidvar and I leave you with a sign-off in Farsi, Didar, which means, until next time, hope to see you soon.